We'll turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, we come to the, pretty much in the center of what we call the servant songs of Isaiah, which began in chapter 40 of Isaiah and run really through the end. In chapter 39 of Isaiah, we have the end of a sort of historical excursus from the prophetic oracles of the prophet, began in chapter 36 and goes through 39, sort of the Hezekiah cycle. King Hezekiah, a king like no other that Israel had known, who followed the ways of his father David, a king who cleansed the temple, who reinstituted the Passover, a king who, there was none like him before or since. He was going to be the great hope of Israel, as you read through there. And at the very end, in chapter 39, this great king makes this one great error and so brings the final judgment from the Babylonians that God sent against them because of this great king Hezekiah. And immediately in chapter 40, which we won't be going that far back, begins the servant songs. As this king failed so badly, and Israel will be saying, how then can we be saved? How then can we avoid any judgment? Who then can be this great king that we had always been hoping for and waiting for? And we thought perhaps he was him. But he failed. And so begins the servant songs. And our text this morning, Isaiah 53, is smack dab in the middle of those servant songs. So with that, please stand for the reading of God's word. I will read the entire chapter, Isaiah 53. But don't worry, it's only 12 verses, but we'll read it all. This is the word of the Lord. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, as for his, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it is the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. God bless the reading of his word and now the hearing and preaching of his word. Please be seated. 
what I just read to you is really one of the more monumental passages in the Old Testament in many ways. And we're not going to preach the entire chapter. I'm going to focus in on answering a question, and Lord willing, bringing it to bear upon us, which is, who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? That's the title of the message, and it gives away some of the conclusions that it is Jesus, and we'll establish this a little bit more firmly as we go through, who the prophet speaks of here. And this passage, this Isaiah 53, these 12 verses, speak of a miscarriage of justice like almost no other that has ever been known before or since. It's a short chapter. There's only 12 verses. And it tells us someone intentionally afflicted for the sins of others, sins in which he did not participate, but he is afflicted for them. It's an innocent man, one in whose mouth was found no deceit, and nonetheless, this one is executed. He's executed in a fashion that takes from him any shred of human dignity. His appearance was marred beyond all human semblance. That's the previous chapter, 50, Isaiah 52 and verse 14. He was executed even after human justice, imperfect at its best, but in this case came to the right verdict. They found him innocent. And of course, despite his innocence, executed horribly. And that is, of course, Jesus Christ of whom we speak. And there's a lifetime of contemplation available in this chapter. But this morning, just this one question for you. Who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? God willing, this will enliven us to greater strides of faith. It will open our hearts to more gratitude to God for what He's done. We will look in awe and wonder at the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ and what He as man went through so that He as God could bring us to redemption and give us salvation. The historical record of the Gospels makes it clear that in Jesus Christ, God entered into both history and humanity. And we read the Gospels, especially in Matthew. We encounter this refrain, this was done to fulfill what was written over and over again. Not just Matthew, but most specifically Matthew. This was done to fulfill what was written. And among the more important apologetic proofs of the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the fact that all of this was prophesied long before in the Word of God. It was prophesied before the Word of God, who is the Son of God, who is very God of very God, became flesh and blood. So this chapter is incredibly important to us because about seven and a half centuries before Jesus Christ, God in the flesh was incarnated and walked on this earth for some 33 years. Before all that, seven and a half centuries before all that, it was so clearly prophesied in such detail. Isaiah 53 is among the clearest of those prophecies. So the question, who killed Jesus? Now first, we need to establish for sure that the prophet Isaiah speaks of Jesus. Now the Jewish commentators in the Midrash, that's what's called the Jewish commentaries called Midrash, for many centuries have named this smitten one as the entire nation of Israel. They said, well, this Isaiah 53, this is Israel at large. This is our nation. So growing up as a young plant, as I read in Isaiah 53, that would be God's election of the nation through Abraham. 
and then his forming of them in the Exodus when he actually made them into the nation that he had promised Abraham. And then the nation is led away like lambs to the slaughter, which would be the Babylonian exile of 586 B.C. And in exile, they're cut off from the land of the living and so forth. And so they would say that this is Israel who's spoken of here. But of course, Isaiah 53 cannot be national Israel then or now or at any time. Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles, a task at which they failed. But this passage is not being about being a light to the Gentiles. This passage, Isaiah 53, is about atonement. It's about atonement for sin. It's about one taking upon himself the sins of others. It's sacrificial language. It's temple language, what we call cultic language, where one makes satisfaction to God for the sins of another, the symbolic process of the temple, as bulls and goats and lambs and turtle doves and so forth were brought in as atoning sacrifices for sin. Now, this isn't about anything that could be related to a nation as a whole. Now, rather than go through all the proofs from Scripture and all the logic and turning what should be a gospel sermon into an apologetic lecture, rather than doing all that, we have a strong, in fact, we have an infallible testimony that's far stronger than any logic or any apologetics or any proof and far more certain and more accurate than any commentator. We have an infallible proof that Isaiah 53 speaks of Jesus Christ. Now, many of you already believe this. You believe that Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. You've been raised in the church, or if you came to church er later in life and you've only been in, in, in the Lord for a few years, I'm sure you've heard this. Isaiah 53 is about Jesus Christ. You believe that. Well, let me solidify your belief with Scripture. Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, which is soon after the Pentecostal sermon that creates the church, or that founds the church, I should say, we find this man, Philip. Philip, we call him the evangelist. And he's told by the Holy Spirit to approach this Ethiopian official. He's called the Ethiopian eunuch. He was Candace's, Queen Candace's treasure. Apparently he had been in Jerusalem for the festivals, for the Passover feast. And so the Holy Spirit says, you go to this man, because he needs some understanding here. He needs some direction. Philip finds him on his chariot. Obviously, or clearly, we'd be surrounded by his retinue. He was a high official. He wasn't alone. And he sees him reading the scripture, and he runs up to him and, and asks him if he understands what he is reading. And the Ethiopian replies to him, and I quote from scripture, how can I, unless someone guides me? So what does Philip do? He jumps up on the chariot, and again, I quote, Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. Now what is that? A little different than the way I read it, but that is Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 and 8. And it probably represents the whole of chapter 53 of Isaiah, which is what I read to you. So here's the question that the eunuch asks Philip. Here's the question that the Holy Spirit sent Philip to the eunuch to answer for him. The eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? 
Is he speaking of himself, the prophet? Is Isaiah saying Isaiah is the one who's going to take upon himself the sins of others? Isaiah the one in in whose mouth was found no deceit? Isaiah the one who said to God in Isaiah chapter 6, I am a man of unclean lips? No, this couldn't be him. It couldn't be Isaiah. Or about someone else? Perhaps the nation of Israel? No. Who's the subject of this injustice? We don't need to speculate. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 and 8, and I would argue for the whole of Isaiah 53, opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Isaiah 53, according to the same Spirit who inspired Isaiah's words some seven and a half centuries before Jesus' advent, is not about the prophet, is not about the nation, it's about one individual. It's about Jesus Christ. You know, right away we can learn something here when we're troubled with a question. We have before us an issue or a problem. We're looking for direction from God and we're praying to Him about it. And we come across something in the Scripture that seems to relate, but it's hard for us to understand. We don't quite get it. We can't get our arms around it. We don't see the direction that God would have us to go to correct things for ourselves. As here, we find the analogy of faith. The Scripture answers Scripture. If I want to know in Isaiah 53, who is this about? Well, Isaiah 53 from seven and a half centuries before does not have a footnote say, by the way, wait seven and a half centuries and wait till Acts 8 is written. We'll answer this. We understand that. My point being that Scripture answers Scripture. We're often accused of being circular in our reasoning because, you know, we were just saying that it answers itself and therefore we've got this closed little circle that doesn't make any sense, but that's wrong. Because Isaiah was written by a man named Isaiah who lived in an entirely different time, a different culture, a different place, different pressures, different politics, different history, and yet ties perfectly to what was written centuries later by a different man in a different place, speaking a different language, but all inspired by the same Spirit of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Brethren, we could stop right away and remind ourselves that when we have these problems, when we have these issues, we even just questions that we're curious about, remember that the first answer to Scripture, no matter how difficult it is, is Scripture itself that the one might answer the other. So Philip's answer is good news. Was it, didn't the scripture say they told him the good news about who? About Jesus, about Jesus Christ. The good news that the lamb led to the slaughter was Christ. So we established that. Do we now know that Isaiah 53, are you certain in your spirit, is about Jesus Christ and no other? And do you now see just from the little, inc- the short incident in Acts chapter 8 that Scripture will answer your questions, answer your curiosities, give you your direction? Well, that's established for us. That it's Jesus Christ who was led away. 
It's Jesus Christ in whose mouth no deceit was found. It's Jesus Christ who, despite all that, was afflicted for the sins of others. We can ask ourselves, well, who killed him? Who killed him? The three answers often present themselves. The Jews killed him. The Romans killed him. Or we all killed him. And I'd like to go through these pretty quickly, each one of them, in case you've heard them. In case you've been in discussions with friends, family, unbelievers, other believers, who killed him? Well, the first option or one of the options is the Jews killed him. It was the Jewish leaders who brought charges against him. We know that. They, it was the Jewish leaders who brought him to Pilate, the governor at the time, specifically because under Roman occupation and law, only Roman authorities could carry out a death sentence. It was, only, it, it was one way they subjugated the people. You know, when they occupied a land, they kept them subjugated because they, and not the nation's leader, but Roman law had sovereignty over the people's lives. In chapter 18 and verse 31 of John's Gospel, Pilate tells the Jewish leaders to take Jesus and judge him by their own laws. But they'd already done that. Well, it wasn't really by law, but by kangaroo kind of proceedings. And they had sentenced him. The problem was what I mentioned before. And they said to Pilate, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, so you have to do it. Now Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, speaking to a Jewish crowd, the ones who stopped when they saw the manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming on the apostles and they heard that great Pentecostal sermon, Peter says, you crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men, meaning the Romans. But they didn't really do the deed, as we say. They just made sure that the deed got done. Well, the Romans killed Jesus, and that's true as far as it goes. All four Gospels confirm that Jesus was handed over for death and that Pilate, Rome's representative and Rome's arbiter of justice, carried out the sentence. He was unwilling and he tried to squirm out of it, but in the end he succumbed to political convenience and he handed Christ over to be crucified. His soldiers pounded in the nails. His soldiers raised the cross. His soldiers confirmed their work with a spear. Washing his hands took away none of the blood guilt. Rome executed Jesus. But, you know, it's really much the same way that people were executed during the Inquisition. Remember that where the Inquisition would convict someone of being a heretic? But they couldn't kill because they were the church. They turned them over to the authorities, the secular authorities who would do their will and execute the condemned so-called heretics. So Rome, yes, but only guardedly so. I want to call them unwitting accomplices or accomplices by convenience. A third option, and I wonder how many of us have heard this, we all killed Jesus. Do you ever hear that? Everyone killed Jesus. This becomes so common, it's almost like a platitude. Jesus died for sin. I have sinned, therefore I killed Jesus. That's a syllogism, right? Where we take the major premise, all of sin, the minor premise, I have sinned, and therefore the conclusion, therefore I killed Jesus. Well, the problem with that syllogism, the problem with that way of reasoning is that it detracts from something really important. It detracts from us the historicity of Jesus' life 
and especially his death and his burial and his resurrection. See, when Peter said what he said to the Jews, he was speaking to those who had actually been there. They were there for the Passover feast, and many, if not most of them, were, who heard that Pentecostal sermon may have been in that crowd screaming before Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. So he's speaking to people who were there. When he said, you crucified him, many of them had to have been in that crowd shouting maniacally for the blood. Well, you weren't there. Neither was I. None of us were alive 2,021 years ago. You know, in The Passion of the Christ, when the actor who plays Jesus is nailed to the cross, the movie's producer, who's Mel Gibson, he's said to have joined his hand with the other hands that held his hand down for the nailing. And he meant this to be symbolic of the fact that the, what I was saying a moment ago, that we all killed Jesus. That's nice sentimentality. And it makes for a good story. And I'm not even 100% sure it's true. I've just heard, and I think I read it a couple of times. I don't ever hear the producer having confirmed it. But even so, that's sentimental. It's only really good for a movie. It's true that our sin, that your sin, that my sin necessitated the cross. That's absolutely true. But that's a different matter than actually having killed literally the Lord. So none of these answers really work logically or factually. In any event, the Gospels make it clear that no man ever had power over Jesus. They didn't have power over his mind. They couldn't get him to say things one way or the other. No one had sovereignty over our Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 4, remember right after Jesus comes out of the temptation of the wilderness and he's preaching in the synagogue and makes an application of what he's reading. It's a, from Isaiah 61. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And that scripture was fulfilled in their hearing. And they were very offended by him. And they're going to throw him off the brow of, the church, of a cliff. Do you remember that? And what does Luke tell us? Quote, but passing through their midst, he went away. I've always wondered how he did that. Luke doesn't tell us. But the point there is, no one had power over Jesus Christ. No one's going to lay a finger. You're not even going to graze his cheek with your thumb unless Jesus Christ allows it according to the will of God. In Matthew 26, 53, Jesus rebukes Peter for trying to defend him from arrest. He says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once... Excuse me, do you, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? Just a word from the Lord. And how many angels do we need to wipe out the arresting party? I don't even know if God needs to send an, send an angel. Just send his word and they're gone. In John chapter 19, verse 11, Jesus tells Pilate, you could have no power over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. So in the most important sense, biblically and theologically, men did not kill Jesus, not really. Because no one could do anything with Jesus except what Jesus allowed them to do. You know, when they came to arrest the Lord, this will be my last point to solidify this point. Do you remember when they said, he said, I am he? And they said, they're looking for Jesus. They're going to arrest him. He says, I am he. You leave them alone. Now I'm paraphrasing. I am he. But what did the arresting party do when he said that? Do you recall? I am he. 
So they put the cuffs on him. They tied him up and dragged him away. Mm -mm. He said, I am he. They said, okay, we've got a warrant for your arrest, buddy. No. He said, I am he. And they fell down as dead men. They fell down as dead men. And you know when they got up to arrest him? When he allowed it. Nothing ever happened to the Lord Jesus Christ that he did not allow and that his father did not will. They didn't get to get up and arrest him until he allowed it according to his father's will. You know, the hymn says many hands were raised to wound him, but it was God who decreed that the hands be raised in the first place. You know, just before what I read from Peter's Pentecostal sermon, he said, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 25, Paul writes, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So Peter does say that the Jews did it by the hands of lawless men. It was they who brought Jesus, delivered him, as we would say, for death. But as Jesus himself has said, no one had any power over him that was not given to them by God. And he never gave himself to the auspices of any man, but to God only. You know, when Jesus prayed at Gethsemane for the cup to be taken away, did he say, oh, Pilate, I hope you won't do this to me? No. I hope the arresting party takes a wrong turn and doesn't get here? No. He prayed to God, his Father, and his Father alone. He didn't pray for the high priest to have mercy. He didn't pray for Pilate to actually follow the law. He pleaded with God, his Father, to save him from the awful cup of the cross. Well, does this all sound incredible to you? Where we're heading with this? I mean, we need to think about it for a moment because we're talking about the gospel. We're talking about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that if you repent of your sins and put your faith in Him and know that he, your salvation was won by Him on the cross because your iniquity was laid upon Him, you will be saved. That's an incredible gospel. But if it's truly the power of God for salvation, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. If it really is the power of God for salvation, then every part of it, no matter how small it may seem to you or how shocking it may be to our sensibilities, it is and it must be from start to finish all of God. We cannot have a hand in it because if we do, it's hopelessly useless and wrong. It's all of God and none of me, none of you. You know, we try and try to make ourselves right. Some people spend a whole life striving to do what's right, to follow what they can of the Ten Commandments and only breaking the small ones, and we've all heard that sort of thing. And when we become faithful to Christ, when Christ gives us faith to believe in Him, and we try to be right, and we fall and we stumble and we can't find ourselves succeeding, you know, it must do us good, even as we read through Isaiah 53, to be reminded that it's Jesus Christ's success. Jesus Christ's success in his life as he fulfilled all where Israel had failed. Jesus Christ and his success on the cross where he accomplished what God sent him to do. Your faith, 
the faith that He's given you to believe. It's all of God. And the success of the gospel is His. Men were not hapless, helpless pawns in all this. God used them, but He didn't force them. God's decrees are the irrevocable articulation of His will, and He never wills for men to sin. As James says, God cannot be tempted by sin. You might think of Judas, Jesus' betrayer. He's an example of how He followed God's secret decrees, yet He had repentance made available to Him by Jesus Christ Himself, and so when He did that which Scriptures demanded, He was fully responsible for it. So, man could not have done anything to Jesus Christ that Jesus Christ did not allow and that God did not decree. So I want to ask why. Why would God do this? Why would God put His only begotten Son to death? And His only begotten Son who was tempted in all ways as we are tempted, He faced everything that you face, and yet He succeeded. He never sinned. There's no deceit found in his mouth, as the prophet Isaiah says, as Peter and 1 Peter would quote from that and say there was nothing ever found in him that was wrong. Hebrews 4.15, as I quoted a moment ago. Why would God do this? Well, there are many reasons we can raise. We could spend a lifetime on this, but one of them would be that the plan of salvation was decreed before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that He chose us in Him. That means God the Father, He chose you. If you have faith in Christ, you were chosen to have that faith, to be in Christ, to receive the benefits of salvation that He won on the cross. When? Before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians 1, 4, and that would coincide with Ephesians 2, 8 of the, in that same book. It says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. In Romans chapter 9, Paul's dealing with the same issue of God's election, of God doing these things before anybody could prove themselves worthy or even unworthy of this gospel. He speaks of Jacob and Esau before either one was born. He says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either bad or good. Meaning, God elected because He's sovereign and elects whom He will because He will and He doesn't explain it to any of us. So there's one reason why God would do this. is because this was determined before life itself on earth even existed. Two is the great love with which He loved us. Paul writes in chapter 8 and verse 32 of Romans that God who did not spare His own Son but gave Himself up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? So God killed His Son because of love for the people who we would have in His Son and because in Him, in Jesus alone, can we have all things because Jesus died for our sakes and rose again for our justification, God now freely gives us all because of Him. And a third reason, incredible but true, Jesus became guilty. But understand that this was God's doing, not man's doing. Man tried over and over again to find Jesus guilty of anything. They failed each time. 
Consider what Mark's gospel says of Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, which was the, the, the ruling council in Israel at the time. Mark chapter 14 and verse 56, For many bore, bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even there, this testimony did not agree. I've always wondered about that. How they heard that. How they could turn that into a death sentence. If I came in here and told you I'm going to tear this building apart, and three days later I'm going to have it built right back up again, you, I mean, you wouldn't take me seriously. Nobody would. And yet it became reason for condemning him to death. And even with that, these hand-picked false witnesses couldn't agree. They couldn't find Jesus guilty. And you think of what Jesus said in his own defense when he was before the council. He said, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And they couldn't find a single word that he said he, that was wrong, but they struck him anyway. And finally, in Luke chapter 23, verse 4, then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. So man couldn't make him guilty. And this ties back to what I was saying before, that no one had sovereignty, no one had control, no one had any influence over Jesus Christ at all, except that it was God who gave it to them. Men tried all they could to make him guilty. And they failed. They failed every time, at every level. So who made him guilty? God did. God did. Isaiah 53, verse 4 says he was smitten by God. Verse 5 says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Our iniquities, not his own iniquities, because he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Our iniquities, not his own. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. So God made him guilty. But Isaiah 53 says, No deceit was found in his mouth. Hebrews 4.15, once again, He in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. God made him guilty. And where do we get this from also? We get this from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The Apostle Paul writes, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake God the Father made him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. He never sinned. He was not tempted by sin. He never breathed a breath except that it was perfectly in line with God's holiness and righteousness in order that, so that in Him, in Christ, by faith in Him, we become the righteousness of God. He wasn't guilty of any sin, but He was made to be sin. You are guilty of every sin, but made to be righteous. He became what He never was, which is sin, so you could become what you never were. I could become what I never was, or on your own could ever become, which is the righteousness of God Himself. Well, I don't know if it was 100% accurate to say that God made him guilty. Because as I've said over and over from the Scripture, he was really guilty of nothing. Yet if God killed him, 
as the scriptures plainly teach, then God violated his own justice by in executing an innocent man. How do we resolve this? This way. God made Jesus to be sin, meaning that on the cross, Jesus was made to embody that which he never was or did. He never thought sinfully. He never acted sinfully. He never took a breath that was other than pleasing to God and perfectly obedient to his will. And yet God made him as if he was every sin. As if he was the reason, which he never was. It's that great exchange of 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's what Isaiah speaks of. Yet he bore our transgressions, pierced for our iniquities. Yet no deceit found in his mouth. You see, because Jesus never sinned, yet was made sin, when he was made sin, what sin did he pay for? Well, God would only make you pay for a sin that you actually committed. Which sin did Jesus commit? None. Let me emphasize that again. Jesus committed none. And what does that mean in this great exchange where Jesus becomes what he never was, which is sin, and you became what you never were by faith in him, which is righteous? What's the beauty of this? Because Jesus was guilty of no sin, when he became sin for us, all of his perfection could be attributed to our sin. Because none was due to his own. Because if any was due to his own, he would still be suffering. May it never be. And if any sin of yours was not covered by the cross, you will suffer forever and ever for it. May it never be. Because Jesus Christ, when he says it is finished, it was finished. He had become sin. And because no sin was due for his, or no penalty was due for his own sin, he rose victorious. God raised him for the dead for our justification. Why could he justify you and me? Because he needed no justification of his own. Why is all his suffering attributed to others? So you could become righteous? Because none was due for his own sin. He was counted to be sin itself in order that all of his payment of sin could be attributed to others, to your sin, to my sin, to anyone who believes this gospel message, that if you will believe that Jesus died for your sins, that God raised him on the third day, you will be saved. That's the promise of Scripture. Saved from standing before God as you are, which is sin. Saved from the wrath of God that Jesus suffered on your behalf. Saved from eternal damnation. See, once again, Jesus became what he never was so you could become what you never were. Jesus became what he never was so you and I could be what we could never have become and which all our striving and all our work and all our effort would leave us only condemned. So who is Isaiah 53 about? It's about Jesus Christ. Well, the Midrash had it sort of correct in one way, though, the commentators then didn't know it. It is about Israel in a way. Not the nation promised to Abraham and drawn out of Egypt. Not the nation that rebelled in the wilderness, though they had seen God's miracles. Not the nation who always seemed to find other people's gods so attractive. True Israel. True Israel. Israel as Israel was meant to be. Israel as the nation could never be. True Israel, which is Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ who exceeded where the nation failed every time. Jesus Christ who stood in temptation's way as they did and yet never sinned. He is the true Israel of Isaiah 53. He is the one in whom alone salvation is found. Do you believe this? Is this gospel yours? At the beginning of that chapter, and we'll only spend a moment on the first verse of Isaiah 53, he starts and he says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? The word believed is the Hebrew word amen. It means to be firm, to be established, to be certain of something. Who is certain of what he's heard from us? And that word is in a special form. And we're not going to go into a lot of detail about this. Just understand that word believed is causative. It means who has been caused to believe this report. Genesis chapter 15, 6, And Abraham believed God, or believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteous. The same exact word in the same exact form. He was caused to believe. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Have you believed this report? You can't reach up to heaven on your own and pull down an understanding. You can't dig down to the earth below and find some treasure that's going to reveal it to you. This is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have faith in Him? Have you believed this report of this gospel? You can cry out to God even now and plead with Him to grant you faith to repent, to believe this report that Jesus Christ died and rose. Are you established on this truth that Christ died for your sins? He rose from the grave. The Apostle Paul quotes in Romans 10, 16, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Cry out to God that he might have mercy on you and make you able to believe. You can't do this on your own, but it's only by the grace of God. And the promise of the scripture is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, his name is Jesus, will be saved. Do you believe in this Lord Jesus Christ? Be confirmed in your faith. Have you believed this report of this gospel? Thank God that he's made you able to believe it that He's caused you to believe it, that He's given you a new heart to believe. And go forth in the confidence and with assurance that it is God who is sovereign, as God who designed this salvation, as God who applied it to you, as God from start to finish who will bring you from this world into His own. Amen? Heavenly Father, give you thanks once again for bringing us together. Thank you, Father, for the faith that you have given to so many to believe this gospel. And I ask, Father, that you would confirm us in the faith, that you would draw us ever closer to yourself and nearer to the image of Christ. And we thank you for this scripture, for the assurances that we have that it's about Jesus Christ and him alone, and that we're reminded that he did indeed bear our sins. He in whose mouth was found no deceit, he in whose soul was found no sin or trace of any iniquity. And so was the perfect sacrifice to bring us to God the Father. And for this we give you thanks in His name. Amen.